listeners, welcome back to Maya, my yoga audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan, and it's time for another special bonus episode of Richard Morgan's novella, Narya. Last week in part one, we listened to chapters one through five, as the main protagonist and character, Narya, discovers a baby along the shores of the Misty Mountains. There, she meets the unnamed, as yet unnamed guardian, who's been assigned to protect the baby from all harm. This week, we're diving into chapters 6 through 10 and the conclusion of the novel. Stay tuned to find out what happens on Narya's next adventures. Chapter 6 Narya sat at the table eating and watching the stranger across from her. With each mouthful, her uneasiness decreases. They sat, enjoying the increasing warmth of the morning sun, and Narya strangely found herself beginning to relax despite the presence of this stranger. It occurs to her that she does not know the name of the man sitting in her home. This needed to be addressed immediately. Where was her mind? As if reading her thoughts, the stranger stopped chewing and began to speak. Before my present duties, I had been assigned to guard a close friend of the royal household. She did not trust her own people to protect her. Sometimes there are those who might facilitate a pathway to death that goes from mouth to stomach. He then continued to eat, slowly chewing each spoonful of stew. Narya was confused. Her guests sensed her confusion and continued. Poison is a common but most discreet way to assassinate someone, particularly the wealthy and the royal, he said rather flatly. It suddenly reoccurred to Narya that she was sitting at her own table with the man who easily could have killed her in the night, or with the very soup she had so rapidly just eaten. He was sitting in the same chair that her husband would sit in and talk to her, yet she did not know the stranger's name or where exactly he was from. The thought of her loss again saddened her, but now was not the time. Emotional things just have a way of coming at you fast, and even faster still when you are not prepared. What is your name? Narya blurted out sharply. You are sitting at my table, breaking bread with me, without the courtesy of me knowing even your name. Narya dropped the spoon beside her bowl and looked at the man in the eyes intently. He returned her steady gaze and slowly placed his own spoon down by the bowl. He extended his hand across the table and with a slight bow of his head said, My name is Seeker. Both sets of their hands reach out and clasp one another across the table. With an acknowledging nod of her head, she too speaks her name. My people call me Narya. And silently, they respectfully acknowledge the other and accept the exchange of their formal names. Now that the formalities have been dealt with at last, they get back to eating and being non-verbally inquisitive about each other. Some sounds from the bedroom interrupt Narya's next line of questioning. And without saying a word, Seeger springs from the table with the quickness and agility of a mountain lion. He covers the space between the table and the bedroom door within seconds 
and in each hand a blade appears as if by magic. The door shakes on its frame as Seeger makes his way into the room, moving swiftly and in a crouching manner, ready to spring into action if need be. Narya sees all of this and follows closely behind, her heart pounding and her mind racing furiously. Narya watches from the doorway as Seeger scans the room for visible signs of danger. Nothing particular stands out except for the open window. Seeing no visible threat, Seeger uncoils himself from the crouching position and strides over to the cradle. Out of concern for the child, Narya slips in front of him to stand over it. What she sees then in the cradle next was shocking, to say the least. The infant, though not hurt, is not far from harm. In its tiny grasp, the child holds a small, brightly colored snake. The snake had wrapped its body around the wrist of the child. Seeger quickly and firmly shoves Narya out of the way and grabs both the child's hand and the snake at the same time. Then, with a swift and precise flick of his right hand, Seeger severs the head of the snake just below the poisonous glands. A slight movement and sound outside the open window catches Seeger's attention, and with a swift yet gentle motion, he thrusts the child into the arms of the obviously startled Narya. I'll be back, he says in a harsh whisper. Seeger, with barely a slight ruffle of his garments, dives out headfirst through the partially open window. The warm bundle of the child seems to shake Narya from her stupor, and she walks quickly to the open window. Leaning forward, Narya pokes her head through the open window, looking out after Seeger, but there was no sign of the man or evidence of whatever had caused him to leap through the window. Narya closed it, refastened the latch, and then walked back to the bed, paying close attention to the now active child in her arms. She carefully shifts the child into the crook of her left arm, and with her other hand puts the cradle onto the floor. Let's just make sure there are no more unfriendly creatures in your bed, she says. With her foot, she scatters the contents of the cradle across the floor. She carefully kicked the remains of the dead snake farthest away from the cradle. Finding nothing to be concerned about, she hoists the cradle back to the bed. She then balances the baby on her hip, the way she had seen it done by the mothers in the village. Narya carefully wrapped a silken blanket around the baby and walked back to the kitchen table. The sun was higher in the sky. After sitting at the table for a few minutes, it suddenly occurred to Narya that the baby must be famished, and in a panic she leapt up from the table. You must be starving, she said. The sudden urgency in her voice and movements caused the baby to fuss. She quickly went back to speaking softly and cooing at the bundle in her arms. The tall woman stroked the baby's cheek with the knuckle of her forefinger, while her mind raced furiously, trying to determine what to do next. You see, unlike most young women her age, Narya was not familiar with children, particularly babies. She did not have younger siblings to care for growing up, and she had been raised as an outsider in a new community. This had effectively caused her to miss out on the presently much-needed mothering skills. Even though she had little to no experience in the child-rearing department and not growing up within a family of her own, Narya had always wanted a family 
and children. It was one of the many things she had planned to accomplish with her husband, but that would not be happening now. Chapter 7 The baby calmed down for a moment, warmed to the stroking of his cheek. This only distracted him for so long, though, and he began to fuss again, this time with urgency. Narya thought maybe she could give him some of the broth from her bowl. She tried with little success to spoon the contents from the bowl into the baby's mouth. The strong taste of the fishy brew was alien to the young one's taste buds, and Narya's efforts to spoon-feed the infant were rewarded with screaming. The baby's crying propelled her into a rising tide of panic. I am not good at this, and neither are you, Narya said as she tried to wipe the cheeks of the child. We must find someone who can help us, she said aloud. Narya needed someone who had experience with babies, particularly how to feed them, but she also needed someone she could trust. There were very few women in the village that fit this particular bill. One of these women was a friend of Narya's named Yilsi. Narya had known Yilsi for some time, and though their relationship did not start out very amicably at first, Narya had mistaken Yilsi as a rival in her pending romance with Kalsh. Little did she know then, and they laughed about it now, that Yilsi's interest had laid elsewhere. After discovering that Yilsi's true love was someone else, Narya and Yilsi had developed an unshakable bond and a strong friendship. Yilsi, for her part, had her own share of losses as of late. She had lost one soul of a set of twins in childbirth, but even though she was deeply saddened by the loss of her son, she vowed to make it up by loving her surviving daughter twice as much if that was ever possible. Narya bundled up the baby in a manner she had seen other young mothers do. After what had happened earlier in the room, she wanted to be very careful. Seeger, the guardian stranger, had still not returned, and Narya sensed that she and the babe were not out of danger just yet. Regardless, she needed help to feed him and keep him alive. No question about that. So she tucked the baby close to her chest, and that seemed to keep him from fussing as much. She then cast a shawl across her shoulders in an effort to disguise the fact that she was carrying a baby. The last thing she needed was to attract unwanted attention from the villagers who knew that she had no child of her own, or from strangers that might be seeking to harm this mysterious child. She opened the front door of her small house and stepped outside. The sun was higher now in the sky. The village was fully awake and bustling with daily activity. Men and women were swarming about the streets, going to and fro, tending to their day-to-day -day business. Amongst the adults, there were children, too, teeming about, some playing and some begging and even pickpocketing as they went. Narya became very nervous, and with her blade close at hand, she began the trip across the village to see Gilsey. Narya's days of living with a roving band of gypsies came back to her mind. In their fashion, 
she used her shawl to cover her flaming red hair and to help disperse the illusion of extra bulk because of carrying a baby. Narya was able to move relatively unseen amongst the villagers, but her height and distinct appearance always attracted more attention than she ever wanted. Narya was suddenly aware that there were more strangers milling about than usual, but this did not bother her too much, as she was singularly focused on getting herself and the baby to Yilsi's without incident. Even though the sun was moving higher, Narya kept to the shadows, being careful to ensure that she was not being followed. After the incident early that morning, she was sure being followed was not a good idea. Narya reached Yilsi's house without anything happening out of the ordinary. Normally, Narya would just walk into Yilsi's house, but today she exercised a bit more caution. Narya stood a few houses away from her final destination, and first she checked to make sure the baby was okay. She looked around again just to make sure no one was watching her. Narya wasn't leaving anything to chance. We are almost there, little one, she said, as she closed the distance to the door of the house. As she neared the doorway, Narya could hear singing coming from an open window. It was a soothing lullaby that sounded vaguely familiar to Narya, but was of little importance for the time being. The door was unlatched, as it was usually at this time of day. Upon hearing Yilsi's soft singing, Narya knew Yilsi was putting down her own baby to sleep. Narya entered the house via the rear entrance, and she was greeted by a sweet, motherly smile from the older woman who waved her over to a nearby chair. Yilsi turned her attention back to the little one in her arms, who was now drifting off to a deep sleep. Yilsi got up from the chair and gently placed the sleeping baby in a nearby cradle, still singing ever so softly. With ease, she then lifted the cradle and brought it to the larger of the two bedrooms. Momentarily, she was standing over the seated Narya, who was holding the squirming baby in her arms. Yilsi's feelings were obvious, and she had a befuddled look on her face. It's a long story, Narya began. I will tell you all about it. But for now, I think he is hungry, and I don't know what to do. Narya looked down again, and the baby in her arms began in earnest to cry. Yilsi reached out her hands. May I? Narya shuffled the wailing bundle over to Yilsi. The other woman took the baby in in a familiar embrace. Yilsi moved the blanket away from the baby's face to take a better look. A slow, sorrowed smile crept across her face. So this is what it would be like if he had survived. A boy, I can tell. And then she sighed. You are a beautiful little one, aren't you, Yilsi cooed, stroking the baby's cheek. The baby responded instinctively to the smell of milk on Yilsi and turned his head towards her chest and began rooting and turning his head side to side, searching urgently for what he knew was there beneath the folds of her clothing. In the same moment, Yilsi, as a mother, 
knew instinctively that this baby was hungry and felt her breasts begin to grow heavier and then tingle with a surge of ready milk. Without any more hesitation, Ilse walked back to the chair, sat down with the baby in her arms, and began to nurse him. Chapter 8 Naria sat silently and watched as her friend handled the baby in a manner only an experienced mother could. Ilse sang and hummed softly while the baby nursed, and her body rocked instinctively if he began to fuss while receiving his much-needed nourishment. After a while, Ilse slowly got up from the chair and brought the sated baby to the other bedroom, for the baby had fallen asleep while nursing. As Ilse softly made her way to the bedroom, Naria quickly and quietly busied herself into making some tea. She knew she had some explaining to do, and that was best done over a pot of tea. Ilse came back into the room, sighed heavily, and sat back down in the chair. Naria pulled her own chair over, sat down next to Ilse, and handed her a mug of tea. They sat in silence for a minute or two. Ilse took a sip from the warm liquid and eased her head back and closed her eyes. Her eyes remained closed, and just when Naria was starting to think Ilse was falling asleep, without opening her eyes, Ilse spoke. So tell me about this baby of yours, Naria. Where did he come from? The two women talked about the events leading up to that moment, and again, after a brief silence, Yilsi sighed and said, You've lost a man and gained a child, and everything has its price. The women sat quietly, each pondering their existence and place in the universe and in a few minutes they both fell into a quiet slumber. Both women were somewhat exhausted, but for different reasons. They slept undisturbed for a few hours, and each dreamer had their own visual journey of people, places, and events yet to occur. Yilsi was the first of the two women to awaken from their midday slumber. The sun had passed its zenith by then, and like clockwork, the delicate sounds of stirring babies eventually filtered out of the bedrooms. Ilse opened her eyes slowly and with a familiar effort roused herself from the chair. She padded over to the partially closed bedroom doors and poked her head into each of them. Both infants were awake, but not fussing. They amused themselves with whatever their little hands came in contact with, usually their blankets. Ilse went back to the hearth to quickly fix herself something to eat. She had learnt it was always best to eat before nursing. Naria heard Ilse moving around, and she too got up from her chair and joined her friend. How are the babies? Are they still sleeping? Naria asked. They are awake, it seems, but not fussing just yet, so I thought I would have something to eat before I nurse. I take it you would like me to nurse your little one as well? Was it more of a statement than a question? You'll see. What am I to do? I cannot keep coming to you to nurse, and I'm not in a position to do so myself. Naria, for now, I will do that. I will do what I can to help you both. I don't mind it. Keep in mind, 
I am producing milk for two. One could detect the clear etch of pain in her voice. You know, there is a common practice amongst the Plains people. Babies were raised on mare's milk when their mothers died in childbirth or from other causes, Yilsi said in an offhanded manner. The thought of such an idea seemed barbaric to Naria, but didn't adults drink the milk of cows and goats? Before long, both babies were fed and changed, and Yilsi provided Naria with a few changes of clothing and cloths especially folded to serve as his diapers. Midday had suddenly given way to mid-afternoon, and it occurred to Narya that her other houseguest may have returned to the house by now and would be looking for her and the baby. Narya gathered up the baby, who seemed quite contented now, with a full stomach and a change of clothing, and she then prepared to make her way back across the village. No words were spoken between them, but the look from Narya's eyes to Yilsi's said, Thank you in so many ways. Yilsi's eyes, too, were equally grateful, especially considering her devastating recent loss. The reunion between them had nourished them one and both equally. Narya's return trip was as uneventful as her trip to Yilsi's house, other than the increasingly growing number of strangers. Narya was unbothered, though, as she made her way home. As the tall woman approached her house, she could see smoke rising from the chimney, and for a fleeting moment she thought of her husband. Maybe, she thought hopefully, maybe he was home, tending to the hearth, waiting for her at long last. Her small flicker of hope was interrupted by the shuffle of the baby she was carrying beneath the folds of her shawl and cape. Narya emotionally and physically steadied herself and continued on the final leg of her journey. Narya entered her house using the rear entrance this time, which meant she had a greater probability of entering the house unseen. Her husband had been clever in that regard. He had been mindful to build the house in a manner that would allow for a covert getaway or entrance, should it be so needed. She was grateful that his forethought had worked in her favor upon such a return as today. Narya shifted the baby and with her other hand unfastened the latch and gently pushed the door ajar with her foot. She wasn't sure what to expect, so she kept her dagger at the ready. Instead of bandits and intruders, Narya's nostrils were assaulted by the slightly sweet smell of roasted rabbit. The sight of the tall stranger busying himself about the hearth put her surprisingly at ease, and the baby sensed Narya's relaxation and began to shuffle. Narya quickly undid her shawl and then brought the baby out from under all the coverings. She held the baby up before her, and she inspected his small hands and delicate fingers as they clutched at her arms. The baby stared back at her with his gem-green eyes. The baby kicked the blanket off of his feet and grinned an almost toothless grin, and this made Naria laugh in return. You are so precious, she said between gasps of laughter. I see you both had a good outing, said the tall man standing by the table. 
Maybe you are hungry? He beckoned to the chair. After the morning's events, he seemed now to be quite at ease. With a questioning look from Narya, he took the baby and held him carefully in one hand. He then bent over to retrieve the blanket from the floor and walked over to the table in the waiting chair. With a slight bow of the head, Seeger held the chair whilst Narya sat down. Narya acknowledged the act of courtesy with a corresponding nod of the head and a gracious thank you. She placed the plump little fellow on her knees and began bouncing him gently up and down. The man turned his attention back to the hearth and the simmering pot. For that very moment, the world seemed in perfect harmony. And then with a heavy sigh, Narya realized with certainty that this ideal scene was not hers to be had. The family, the baby that was not her own, nor the man who was not her husband. The baby, sitting on her knees, sensed her sudden unease, and then he too became unsettled. Little one, it saddens me to know you, that you have lost your loved ones much in the same way I have lost mine. Destiny has brought us together, though it can seem so cruel and unkind, Narya whispered. Narya prepared herself for Seeger's story of the day's events and looked forward to his carefully prepared dinner. Chapter 9 While the occupants of the small house of Narya in the shadows of the misty mountains happily supped, farther away and beyond the mysterious depths of the seas and misty mountains, another supper of sorts was well underway. The wizard, Ashka, was digesting the most recent news from his latest attempts at wiping out the royal bloodline. Ashka's chief henchman was groveling before him with reports from their many spies. My lord, the royal fleet has been destroyed. There are no survivors. Our scouts and spies have reported that all three royal vessels have sank and the escort ships have been smashed against the rocks. Ashka chewed thoughtfully and noisily on the near rotten meat before him. His plans were finally falling into place, and the end of the royal bloodline was at hands. Are you sure of this? The wizard asked, without looking up from his plate, which was littered with the undercooked and most foul remains of some unfortunate creature. My lord, I am sure of this news. It was brought to me by my most trusted man, the henchman said, still kneeling in a position with his one remaining eye, daring to stare out from beneath a dark, dirty hood. What of the child? Is he dead? A child cannot survive on its own at sea, my lord. I am sure the child too is dead, drowned in its carcass devoured by a sea dragon, grunted the one-eyed man. You cursed pig of a man, I gave strict orders to bring me proof of their deaths. Bring me proof, bellowed Ashka, pounding his claw-like hand into the table so hard that the tiny fragments of bone and flesh remaining on his plate scattered across the room and fell like pebbles. Yes, 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 my lord, the one-eyed man stammered, beating a hasty retreat. 
The one-eyed man got fully to his feet once he found himself in the relative safety and comfort of the damp hallway. What proof, he muttered to himself, scratching at the scar that had now replaced his left eye. To his wretched mind, the only sure proof of the royal family's death would be lying at the bottom of the sea or in the bowels of a dragon. The simple-minded man was so deep in thought that he was not immediately aware of the figure standing in the darkened alcove. Since this spot was just outside the visual field of his remaining good eye, when the figure cleared his throat and stepped partially out of the shadows, saying, Captain! The one-eyed man spung on the balls of his feet, startled and then angry that he had not seen this approach from a stranger coming. His stubby fingers found and closed around the hilt of the short sword dangling about his hip. Who goes there? He growled, training his one good eye in the direction of the sound and the movement that had so startled him from his thoughts. A tall and supple figure slipped forward from the shadows. Captain is I, Maloche. There was no need to be alarmed. Then, with that reassuring introduction, Maloche stepped into the light of the lanterns that lit the hallways of the castle at night. Sir, one can never be too careful, muttered the captain in his annoyance, his sausage-like fingers still resting lightly on the hilt of his sword. You are so right, my captain, said the slender figure, bowing slightly. A trace of what seemed to be a smile escaped from the corners of his thin lips. Captain, walk with me invited Maloche. The captain stared back at him, trying in vain to mask his contempt. Captain, I, I can't help but notice your troubled disposition, Maloche said, placing his hand lightly on the crooked elbow of the shorter and much wider man. Like a sow, the other man allowed himself to be led by Maloche down the hall. Captain, we elves are a sensitive race so sensitive that we can detect distress in others with such little effort. And you, my fine fellow, have a troubled mind, Maloche the elf said in a calm voice, barely above a whisper. Tell me, Captain, what word of the royal family? Maloche inquired. All three of the royal vessels were destroyed by a savage storm, the captain answered. What about survivors? All were lost to the sea. It seems the vessels were blown off course during the storm and the ships were dashed amongst the teeth of the reefs and the rocky shores. Captain, I dare to ask, did you send other ships to determine whether anyone actually survived? Only a fool would send more men to their death in search of the dead. The captain's response was sharp, biting. Forgive me, Captain. I, I do not mean to question your judgment. I am merely inquiring out of concern for the royal family, Maloche answered, barely masking his growing contempt for his so-called superior. He thought to himself, how could such a cur rise to the rank of captain in the royal guards? Maloche, like many of his kind, shared a certain disdain for humans, ever since the end of the Great War, when an alliance was forged between men and elves in order to drive the darkness from the land. But the alliance that was once strong enough to drive out the darkness was weakening. This was due in large part to the activities of many of the dark elves, 
During the Great War, the Dark Elves had suffered the most. They lost their homes and communities in the mountains and were forced to scatter and live amongst the other elves and men in order to survive. Many Dark Elves believed that it was the weakness of men and the High Elves' distaste for war that stopped short the final assault that would have driven the Dark Forces forever from the Misty Mountains' ancestral home to the Dark Elves. However, it had been prophesied that once again the darkness would return, and then the House of Men shall fall, and they too will be scattered throughout the land, and in turn the Dark Elves would be returned to their rightful place amongst the beauty and majesty of the Misty Mountains. Many, like Malosh, would do anything to speed up the process and bring about the prophecy. As they saw it, without the fall of men, the house of the Dark Elves would not be restored. So while Malosh finds this man's presence no more worthy than the filth beneath his foot, for now he may serve towards a greater purpose. Like the corrupt captain and the treacherous wizard, Ashka, Malosh had his own agenda at hand. The two figures moved along beneath the flickering lights of the castle hallway. They were barely able to contain their respective contempt for one another as they made small talk with forced civility and calm. Of course, these were the common deceptions that the courtesans practiced daily and publicly. The last thing each man wanted was to reveal their true intentions through this painful conversational exchange. They came to a halt at the end of the corridor, and the captain clicked his heels in a military salute, and Malosh bowed in response. Each bid the other farewell, and then both men went about their business. Chapter 10 After supper, Narya gathered the bowls and pitcher from the table, along with the eating utensils. She left the baby with Seeger and quickly cleaned and put away the kitchen utensils. The last thing she needed was an open invitation for rats and other equally unpleasant pests. Narya came back to the main part of the house to find Seeger humming softly and rocking the babe in the cradle. She walked around the cradle and looked in just as the baby was drifting off to sleep. The humming was unfamiliar to her, but nonetheless rather soothing. She sat down, watching Seeger by the glow of the lamp, the flame flickering across his face. It was getting darker earlier, and the days were shorter now, which meant the snow wouldn't be too far away. Narya then turned her head to the window and watched the sun find the horizon without much ado. The golden light caressed and flickered across the breaking swells of the sea, and she turned her gaze back to the baby and watched as with slight twitches of his tiny hand that he drifted off into a quiet, peaceful sleep. Traces of a small smile remained in the corners of his small mouth. Narya lifted the cradle gently from the table and carried it to the bedroom. Seeger followed, closely behind them still humming. While Narya settled the cradle on the side of the bed closer to her and further away from the window, Seeger checked the room for intruders or any other suspicions. 
and upon finding none, he fastened and secured the window, all the while humming as he worked. Narya watched the man as he moved about the room with self-assurance, confidence, and some degree of skill. These noticeable attributes must have been honed and perfected from years of experience and practice. Narya finished her positioning of the cradle and then joined Seeker again, who had reseated himself at the table. He had positioned himself so that he had a clear view of both entrances to the house, as well as the only window. Narya pulled an earthen jug from the cupboard along with two goblets and brought them to the table and sat down across from Seeger, who had begun to prepare a pipe for smoking. Narya poured them each an ample serving of mead, an intoxicating drink made from fermented honey. After packing the bowl of the pipe to his satisfaction, Seeger gathered his legs beneath him and stood up. He took a couple of steps towards the fire, reached for a burning twig, shook loose the ash from the tip, and exposed the live burning beneath. He applied the fire stick to the bowl of his pipe and puffed gently until the contents emitted a glow, followed by furls of smoke escaping from the corners of his mouth. Seeger then moved back to the chair and resumed his position of quiet watchfulness. As the pungent and heady aroma from his pipe trailed into the room, Seeger reached next for the goblet and brought the amber liquid to his lips. So tell me about your husband or brother, asked Seeger, setting the goblet back in its place again and continuing to puff at the pipe. The question caught Narya by surprise. She did not remember talking to him about her missing husband. My uh, husband, stuttered Narya, looking away. Your husband, where is he? Seeger asked flatly. He's gone fishing for many months now, she said, and he has yet to return. Talking about her husband, Kalsh, brought moisture to her eyes, but Narya was not about to let this stranger see her cry. Why would a fisherman possess the bow of a woodland elf warrior? He asked, incredulous, nodding towards the magnificent weapon hanging beside the hearth. The wood elf were known for their prowess with a bow. However, they were not to be outdone by their dark elven cousin's skill with a blade. It was said that a woodland elf is able to pierce the fluttering wings of a butterfly from a hundred paces after all. Seeger's new line of questioning brought a sharp stare from Narya. Sensing her sudden unease, Seeger responded, I have to make sure the prince's surroundings are safe. After a pause, he continued, I am sorry. I did not mean to pry. It is strange that you ask this of me, Narya said, angrily passing the back of her hand across her face, as if to make sure no tears did escape. When you disappeared out of my bedroom window this morning, just as quickly and mysteriously as you appeared last night, I suppose you will say again that you are just doing what is expected in regards to the child? Seeger flushed and looked away, but did not respond. If you must know, she continued, my husband was not always a fisherman. 
and you have not always been a fisherman's wife, he responded in an even voice. My husband has been missing at sea for some time now. Never has he been away this long, and I fear the worst. Narya's head hung under the weight of the words that had passed from her lips for the first time. Hearing the despair in her voice, Seeger reached across the table and touched the skin of her forearm. His fingertips were dry and cool to the touch, and Narya at this moment welcomed the touch of another adult human, even that of this stranger. Pulling the smoking apparatus from his lips, he said to her softly, You should not give in to hopelessness until, and if you see his dead body, you must continue to believe your husband will return. His fingers retreated and the pipe resumed its position at the corner of his mouth. Gray smoke began to curl some more from the corners of his mouth as he continued to puff gently with his eyes half-closed. Narya took a long, deep sip from the goblet before her and consciously felt the amber liquid as it passed through her lips, down her throat, and then finally brought warmth to her stomach. Narya began to think about happier times. Before she could drift further into her own thoughts, however, Seeger cleared his throat to get her attention. <clears throat> More assassins will come looking for the prince. The man paused as if to reconsider what he was about to say. Even though he was only a guardian to the royal family, the king trusted him implicitly. With that trust, the king had confided in him both the true nature of the voyage and the very core of the mission. Seeger, at this very moment, was debating whether or not he should involve the woman sitting across the table from him. While he formulated his thoughts, Narya looked at him with a new intensity. The mention of assassins could only mean one of a number of things, and they all involved varying degrees of danger. Narya had heard the rumors, seen the increasing numbers of strangers in town, and heard the whispers about the growing darkness coming from the east. But before Narya could voice her thoughts, Seeger continued, His Highness learned of a plot, the plot to destroy the royal bloodline. If the royal bloodline is broken and the royal house destroyed, that would mean the end of the alliance. Only the king's trusted advisors know of his findings. This voyage was to do two things, get the prince to safety and to seek the counsel of the High Elves. If the High Elves confirm the king's findings, it means there will be war. What are we supposed to do? Narya replied. The royal fleet was attacked, and you and the prince are the only royal survivors. Narya was still trying to wrap her thinking around the implications of this particular conversation. What had he just said? She had heard the rumors and the prophecies. The falling of the House of Man will permit the return of the Dark Elves to their rightful place of rule at the Council of Elves. What better way to hide the assassination of the king and the prince by making their deaths seem like an attack of piracy or severe storms? There is much to be done. I, we, must get this prince to safety. While he remains alive, the royal bloodline remains intact, but it also means more assassins will be on their way. Seeger stood up from the table. 
I am going to need your help if you are willing. You seem capable, and his highness seems to take to you. I am not a wet nurse, if that is what you mean, Narya retorted. I am sorry. I meant no offense. It's just that, in my duties as guardian, I have been asked to do a lot of things, but never have I been asked to care for a child, especially one of such importance, he said, lowering his head. I will think about it and let you know. Narya was a little less than firm in her response. Thank you. That's more than I can ask. I must prepare to leave. Before you know it, there will be more scouts looking to confirm the death of the royal family. And with that, Seeger turned from the table and walked towards the door. Where are you going? Narya asks. I am going to scout the area one last time and see what I can find. If there is anything useful from the wreckage, perhaps... In my earlier search, I could not find the body of the king. If the sea did claim the king's body, I want to make sure it is returned to the queen and given a royal burial. The remains of a king should not be left to the sea and scavengers. And with that, he left. After slipping through the door, Seeger carefully checked the perimeter of the small house to ensure it was safe before heading for the rocky shore. After the, er after the earlier encounter, it was only a matter of time before other assassins would show up. The Dark Ones, as they are called, would soon come. Seeger is certain of that. That certainty of the Dark Ones coming made Seeger hasten his steps towards the shore. It didn't take Seeger long to get to the rocks. He carefully scouted the area first to be sure that he would not have any unwelcome surprises. The four-legged scavengers weren't a concern for him but he wanted to make sure he didn't have a repeat of that morning's events. For now, he was alone. No one seemed to have discovered the wreckage, and those that might have were either scared or making preparations to come back. The fickle tide had already started to reclaim what it had washed to the shore earlier. Seeker picked his way through the remaining debris with a swift stealth. Unlike the other scavengers who were looking for food, Seeger was looking for things he could use for the upcoming journey. He wasn't quite sure what he was looking for, but anything to do with the prince would be helpful. Staying close to the ground and with the help of the bright moon, Seeger balanced upon the broken wooden planks, bodies of dead soldiers, and the royal guards. The bodies were starting to bloat and discolor. One more day beneath this broiling noonday sun, and they would split open like pods of peas. That's if the wild dogs didn't get to them first. Before long, Seeger found a medium-sized trunk bearing the royal insignia, indicating that it belonged to the prince. Checking to make sure it was still intact, he lifted it from the sand with ease and carried it a little ways and shoved it, hiding it beneath some shrubs. After securing the prince's trunk, he went back to the water's edge and quickly gathered up the belongings of the royal party. In particular, he salvaged the things belonging to the royal family. He made a pile, far enough away from the encroaching tide, and started a fire. Under the present circumstances, burning the remains makes the most sense to Seeker. The fire might draw attention, but by the time others could show up, there would not be much to salvage from the flames. Furthermore, 
burning whatever evidence and remains of the royal party would help to delay and hopefully confuse any pursuers. Seeker stood in the shadows and watched the fire grow in intensity as it burned through the cured wood and fabric in the pile of royal remnants. When the fire burned the remains to dust, and after making sure his tracks were not visible, Seeger makes one more backward glance and then slips away into the shadows, making his way unseen to Narya's house once more. End of book one. Listeners, thanks for making it through to the end of the audio novella with me this week. That wraps up the two bonus episodes, 63 and 64, of Richard Morgan's Naria. Do you think he should continue the tale and release another book to go along and finish the story of Naria, Seeger, Kalsh, and the Baby Prince? Let me know. Send me an email, myyogaaudio at gmail.com. Next week, stay tuned on May the 12th as we release episode 65, which is another interview with a special guest who's a prostate cancer survivor and also my big brother. His name is Rydell Painter, and I look forward to introducing and sharing what he has to say with all of you. I'm also working on an upcoming episode about healing from inflammation. So stay tuned for that and more interviews with amazing guests, creatives, artists, wellness and magic workers the world over. Thanks for being along on this ride with me. I'll see you soon.